Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we'll be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We'll be sharing real-life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. In today's episode, we have a guest who is at the forefront of product design for one of the world's leading ride-sharing tech companies, Lyft. She and her team drive positive behavior change that can help to improve cities at large by making transportation efficient, safe, and joyful. From leadership roles at Lyft, Airbnb, Green Start Ventures, and Frog Design, our guest has a long tenure of leading teams through the lens of design and creativity. She was named one of Business Insider's 10 People Transforming Technology and received the Girls in Tech Creator of the Year Award. In 2017, she was named one of Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business. I'm delighted to welcome Vice President of Design at Lyft, Katie Dill. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of Dale Carnegie. Yeah, well, thank you. It's actually interesting because I know that I had read a story about uh, your affinity for the book, so we'll definitely want to make sure we, we talk about that. Uh, tell us a little bit about your personal journey, Katie. How did you, you get to where you are today? And, and certainly you're in a position of, of great authority and responsibility. We'd love to hear your story. Well, let's see. It started on a rainy day when I was back. <laughs> I will start a little bit just from childhood. So I grew up in the suburbs of New York. And I was lucky enough to spend quite a bit of time as I was growing up outdoors in the Adirondacks. My parents would take my sister and I up there and perhaps they were, you know, hoping for, you know, maybe a, a few more sons in their life. I don't know, but they kind of raised us in a way that was probably more commiserate of what young boys are doing, like chopping wood and driving things and making things. And, you know, early on that taught me one, there's nothing that I can't do as a female in comparison, which I think is definitely prolonged my courage in the workforce. But then secondly, it taught me about using my hands and making things. And when you see a problem, trying to go after it and solve it. I had no idea that that was a thing called design until much later. I graduated college. I went to Colgate in upstate New York and I studied history just because I wanted to know why things are the way they are. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to Boston and I was kind of trying to find my path and decide what to do. I was interested in architecture. I, I won't get into why, but it, you know, probably obvious reasons because architecture is wonderful. But talking to architects made me realize that that industry was probably not quite right for me. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm just a little too impatient for architecture. Uh, it takes so many years to see anything built. But I learned about product design at that time. A roommate of mine saw a video from IDEO making the shopping cart. And it basically took viewers through the path of product design. And that was the first I had ever heard of it. And it was this kind of aha moment of here's this you know, profession that is essentially what I just like to do on my own free time and something that I've been doing since I was a kid. And so once I heard that, you know, nothing could stop me. I just wanted to get as close to it as possible. So started to cold call product designers and ask them about their careers and what should I should do. And basically every one of them recommended, well, you're going to have to go back to school because you have no design background whatsoever. So I went for a second undergrad degree and moved across the country to California to a place called Art Center College of Design that was well known for great product design. 
And so I spent four years there learning design and absolutely, you know, one of the most hasty decisions of my life, but certainly the right one and took me on a path where, you know, I get to do not only what I love naturally, but, you know, I actually get to make a career out of it. It's interesting, though. I mean, you were very intentional. I think back even to the, the story you talk about from a childhood, you had a confidence that enabled you to, to make that decision. I mean, to go across the country, to do something new, to walk away from a lot of what you'd already prepared to do. Yeah. What was that like? You know, and I actually have framed on my wall in my my bedroom a note from my father. He passed away 10 years ago, so I'm, I'm pretty nostalgic for the things from him. But it's a note that he wrote to me when I decided to move to California. And basically it says, like, I have no idea what you're doing. This product design thing, I don't know. But we believe in you. We, you know, are always here. You're only a phone call away. And good luck in this adventure. And we know you'll be a success. And so I daily am just so thankful for the support that I had from my parents, both in the independence that they gave my sister and I and the trust that they had in us, but also just like the unrelenting support even when they didn't understand I'm actually about to be a mom, and oh. I really, really hope I can carry that forward. And, you know, sometimes, you know, we talk a lot about diversity in the workforce, and I think a lot of it starts with upbringing and, you know, what people are encouraged to do or not do and risks they're encouraged to take and support that they're given. And I, I hope we can bring more of that to our young That's awesome. So you made that change, and you moved out to California. And tell us what happened after that. Yeah, so I was at Art Center studying product design. Um, Art Center is very well known for people that create these beautiful things. They're so great with their hands, so beautiful in their sketch work. I was not good at that. So for me, it was you know definitely a learning curve to get better at that. But one thing that Art Center really brought for me was, you know, the perspective on what is design and not just, you know, that how to execute on it, but also how to use it to solve bigger problems. I took advantage of an opportunity to go to INSEAD, which is a business school that's based in both France and Singapore. I went to the Singapore campus. It was a essentially an exchange program of sorts with Art Center and INSEAD. And the whole point of it, why they wanted us as design students to go, was to learn the business of design. So maybe one day, you know, when we create our own products, we could, you know, fulfill a business as well. But I got so much more out of that. Being there was really a kind of pivotal in my career because when I started to interact with MBA students, you know, who kind of thought in a slightly different way than the design students that I was surrounded by, and they had different tools in their tool chest, but yet, you know, the problems we were trying to solve weren't all that different. Like, we all wanted to understand, like, what do consumers, what do people want? How do we bring it to them? How do we make a difference? And we had different routes to get there, but similar passions. So that was like this epiphany of, you know, wow, if we work together, we can do some really great things because we have like a more well-rounded approach to solving problems. And also made me realize, you know, some of the things that I could do in my processes of understanding users and creative generation, these types of things could be really powerful and even coming up with things like business strategy and organizational structure. So that really put me on, I'd probably say, a, a heightened or higher velocity path towards leadership and towards things like strategy, organizational design. Uh, and so later I went to a, um, a management consultancy in Australia and I worked there. This type of management consultancy, while it 
competed with things like Bain and McKinsey. They actually used the tools of design to do so. Uh, and so that was kind of like right in that sweet spot of where I was, you know, kind of gaining interest. And then I, uh, when I finished Art Center, I went to Frog Design and joined as what they called the design analyst, which was kind of like do all the things related to design and started to lead programs where we would work with Fortune 50s on their, their product and their brand and their strategy. And, you know, that was, you know, kind of a great uh, inroad into working with these larger corporations. I think after that, five years of that, I was ready for startups, and that's where I went next. Well, and that's a, that's a pretty gutsy move going to startups, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a very, very, very different. So let me ask you, you had this epiphany really that kind of opened your eyes about working together, if you will. You talked about really having your eyes open to leadership. What were some of the things that you did to start to become a better leader? Because, I mean, today you've assumed a position of very significant leadership. What were some of the things you did early in your career to become a better leader? While I was at Art Center, I had a teacher. Her name was Maureen Thurston. And she she's absolutely one of the, the biggest mentors in my life. She taught a class, I think it was called something like Design Leadership. And she assigned the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And so reading that, um, and I still have the copy that's like heavily highlighted. I probably should highlight what's not important because I end up going way too far the other way. Uh, <laughs> but she had us read it and it was it was really, really useful to me as a person, as a colleague, as a, a one day a leader, because I think that the key takeaway was kind of like recognizing that people around us, you know, have their own context, their own passions, their own needs. And, you know, it's not their fault, but of course, they're going to think about themselves first as they should. And recognizing that, you know, shifts your disposition and how you interact with people. So for example, when I encountered, you know, this group of MBA students, it's like, okay, they think and act differently. And I could just like take that as a like, okay, we're, we're on different sides here. But I think the lessons from that book, for example, had helped me want to better understand where they were coming from and to better understand, you know, what they were trying to do. And that like really made my mind much more open to, oh, there, there's a lot of similarity here, actually. And, oh, we have similar goals. And maybe I communicate it in this way versus that. I, I can get more done together. Uh, so I, I think I started to kind of like learn lessons of leadership through that and through the work at school that once I was at Frog, I did move pretty quickly from an IC, an individual contributor, to a, a manager and a leader of the team. What, what were some of the things that you saw in yourself or the people recognized in you that helped you move so quickly from being an individual contributor to more of a leader? Perhaps it kind of goes back to, and honestly, I've not put these two thoughts together before you're kind of asking the right questions, I guess, to get me there. I think it does come back to that courage piece as well. Like when I am in a situation and there's, I'd say, a group of people and you could tell that we're all going off in different directions, I luckily have the courage to stand up, maybe grab the whiteboard marker and start like mapping out what are we talking about and try to bring clarity to the room. So it's it's a form of facilitation, but you know, you do that enough, it ends up becoming leadership as well. I guess in part, there's a part chutzpah, there's part, you know, just impatience and want to move forward. But it's also like, I, I do see the value of us coming together and doing things more connected and, um, and efficiently. And so I think it's it's more of a, <laughs> I was gonna say, it's, it's a moral obligation to take on leadership. No, not quite. But if I could provide value to the room, that's what will drive me there. And so that's what ended up. 
Well, that, that's really a neat way to look at it as a moral obligation, right? I mean, you've got something to share. You've got something of value. And, and yet many times people hesitate. They're afraid to, to break through. And, you know, I think about you talked about growing up and, and the role of your parents. I've got four daughters, and I, my hope is that they will all be strong, confident young women. What advice might you have for strong, confident young women, for women to speak up and to have that courage? It's, it's tough because also, you know, everyone is different. And, you know, some folks are more extroverted, some are more introverted, and it may be completely uncomfortable for someone to speak up. And I think we have to, you know, be okay with that. I guess my recommendation would be like, find your, your own voice. It might not be to stand up and grab the whiteboard marker. Perhaps, you know, your voice comes through something written. Maybe after that meeting, you, you share your thoughts. Perhaps your voice is better one-on-one and through building advocacy and allies and not necessarily standing in front of an audience. Also, there's so many forms of leadership, right? Leading from behind, leading from the front. You know, I don't think you have to be necessarily the star of the show in order to make it happen. And in fact, leaders that aren't are often way more successful. But I do think the fear I have for young women or even you know folks that are underrepresented in general, when they don't see themselves, they don't know what's possible. Uh, so it's like, oh, it's you know only men around me, so therefore I guess only men can do it. And, and that's a real scary factor. So I, I do hope that Today, at least there's an, enough options out there of people to see that you might have to just hunt it out. And maybe it's not in your company, but it's somewhere else. Or listening to podcasts, reading articles, reaching out to folks might be the best way to find a mentor as well. Because I think I don't think I'd be where I am without mentors. And so I'm a big fan of using the, the individuals around me that can inspire me for many different reasons. You know, not one mentor for everything, different people for different things. So Katie, tell us a little bit about one of your mentors? Who's someone who's inspired you to be your best? Well, the, the teacher I told you about, Maureen Thurston, who I, I met at Art Center, and then later, actually, when I was in Australia at that management consultancy, she was working there at the time, and she actually was who introduced me to it. But she is absolutely one of those people because talk about courage and just the ability to break through and push through and be comfortable to walk into a room where everybody disagrees and give a new idea and yet be able to move people to it. I mean, she's she's like a black belt in this stuff. And I think uh, Dale Carnegie would be impressed by her because she actually leverages her knowledge of design. She was a designer and design done right is empathetic. It tries to understand what does the customer, the user need. And that same thing is really powerful in the working world, right? You want to understand the needs of, of those around you, just as you know, you read in How to Win Friends and Influence People, like know where they're coming from so that you can then frame things in a way that people see as mutually beneficial. And so she has had immense impact as a teacher, but then also in the, the working world uh, now in Australia. And so I've really enjoyed seeing her career and being inspired by what she's been able to do and the culture changes she's been able to impact. You've talked about some of the challenges you faced when you came into Airbnb and you came into a team and it was a tough situation and some of the things you learned from that. Share a little bit about that story, please. So uh, before I was at Lyft, I was at Airbnb for almost four years. And I joined the team uh, when it was relatively small. Uh, The design team at the time was about 10 people. And I came in ecstatic. It was a dream job uh, working at a company that I was a huge fan of and in a role that I was extremely excited about. And 
during my interviews, I learned a lot about what was working and what wasn't. And so, so I already started to kind of like frame an understanding of what the team needed. And, you know, the TLDR of that was that it was clear that there was friction between the designers and their counterparts, engineers and product managers, and the teams weren't working as well together as they probably should. There was concerns about quality of the work and there were things that needed to be fixed. And I of course, wanted to make my bosses proud. I wanted to do right by the company. And so I very quickly set out to make change and thought things were going pretty well, like change was happening. But about a month in, so about 30 days into the time there, I got an invite on my calendar uh, where five of the 10 designers wanted to meet with me and somebody from HR was on the invite. So not a good sign. (laughs) An hour and a half meeting, actually it may have been two hours, not a good sign. So I show up not really knowing what the heck was going to happen, but showed up, walked into the room and they were all there seated around the table and they had a pack of papers in front of themselves and they sat me down and proceeded to take turns reading from this pack of papers. And what the pack of papers was, I don't know how many pages, but it looked like a lot, were all the things that they didn't like about me and what I was doing and my leadership. And they they went on for, for quite a while going through it. And there were a few things here and there that were probably, that were misrepresented, but I, I did my best to not, you know, refute or get defensive and just kind of took it in. But there were definitely things that were understandable. And the theme of those things was that I didn't earn their trust before coming in and trying to make change. So they were saying things like, you know, you're critiquing our work and you don't really know like, you know, what we're trying to do or you don't know our skills. And they had a a personal view of it. But if, you know, you zoom out and you look at it and it's like, oh, yeah, like they don't even they don't even really know who I am. They don't know what I can do or what I'm capable of. They don't know how well I know them and that I even care about them or that I understand what they're trying to do or that I value what they've done before. So as hurtful as that occasion was, and certainly was probably the scariest moment of my leadership career, it was an unbelievably powerful learning moment because I, I think, you know, in the end of the day, they were right. And I, I came in swinging and I should have come in listening and really trying to understand them. And then once then I would be able to make change with them with me by my side as opposed to change to them. Uh, so yeah, that was that was a rough moment, but it definitely helped me course correct quite quickly. And so we made some changes. I started to like, you know, just spend better one-on-one time talking to them, learning about them. And we actually went from having the worst engagement scores in the company just before I got there to the best engagement scores, like one of the you know, surveys the company does. So, and, and that was just in six months. So honestly, just like showing care and listening was pretty fundamental in a, a shift to how to better lead a team. And so when I later left Airbnb and came to Lyft, uh, you could be damn sure I did it right that time and, and came in listening. Well, it's a great thing, too, that you were receptive to the feedback, right? Because you you could have been defensive. You could have been self-righteous about it. And it sounds like it would have had a completely different result. It was really about you being able to, you know, one of the things Dale Carnegie talks about is if you're wrong, admit it. It sounds like you were able to look inside and see some areas where you were wrong, admit it, and to pivot from that. So it sounds like a great result. Yeah, you know, I think that another lesson from that book and why I've had to read that book three times because I'm not exactly great at this piece is 
you know, as he talks about, if somebody else represents your idea or somebody else, like maybe they say it wrong and you your gut is you want to correct them. And that certainly is my gut. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, I think Dale Carnegie talked about like, what is the benefit of that? You call them out, you make them feel awkward. And is anything better off? Are you better suited now? Or are they in a, you know, any more likely to work in the direction that you were hoping they would? And so I think there were those kind of lessons in my mind of calling them out in the room and telling them like, you got that wrong and like trying to like fight this little detail and that little detail certainly wasn't going to make them more open to my leadership style. Uh, It probably would have put more friction in the room and been far less effective in me being able to turn things around. Was that hard for you to do, though, Katie? (laughs) Yes. I mean, I I definitely was sitting there. I'm sure my blood pressure was rising. And uh, yeah, it was tough. I'll leave it there. But the reasons to not want to hear it were definitely in my mind. But it wasn't going to help. Well, it's, it's good. We talk about leadership definitely involving resilience and uh, kind of that ability to self-reflect and social intelligence. It sounds like you leveraged all of those things in that moment. And you did great things at Airbnb, and now you're doing great things at Lyft. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing there and, and what some of the opportunities are that you see moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, so at Lyft, I lead the design team. And so what that means is it's about the uh, 140 folks that are working on basically all aspects of the product and the service. So if you are a rider and you open up your Lyft app and you order a ride, we are the team that determines what that app looks like, how it works. We work side by side with engineering and product management in order to create these products and determine what they should do and how they should do it. Uh, We also are the designers that are working on our bikes and scooters. So creating, you know, new vehicles for transportation to make it ever more efficient. And we, you know, work in a way that's really collaborative. And, you know, it's great to see the kind of connections that can happen, just like I was talking about when I was at INSEAD, but like bringing people together that think differently. So it actually wasn't this way when I first joined. Design actually operated pretty separately from engineering and product management. But one of the first changes that I made after first earning trust of the team was to shift the way that we worked. Uh, So that design worked really hand in hand with engineering, product management, and science. Um, And that way, you know, one, design is a part of the, the conversation at all stages from what problem should we solve to how should we solve it and all the way through to launch and also you know design shared in the goals and could really become more effective as a partner with engineering and product also a big part of our design team is research and so understanding what people really think and want you know that's a a critical piece of product strategy as well as product definition so we um, have these individuals that stand side by side with uh, their counterparts to really inform all that we do so that that we can become a more customer-focused company in all that we do. So, Katie, you're a leader in uh, not just Lyft, but really in the tech industry. What are some of the emerging trends that you see shaping things in the next five years, and what do leaders need to do to be prepared for those? Oh, boy. Uh, It's a good question, and there, there are a lot of things to talk about there. One, I'll start with thinking internally focused. Uh, the tech industry is changing not just in consumers' hands, but also how we create tech. 
We, as I mentioned, are a team that work alongside engineers and product managers, et cetera. And there is a, a process for building product. Oftentimes it means a designer essentially paints a picture of what something looks like and then an engineer builds it. I'm very excited, but that there are great improvements into the way that we work and such that it's not quite so kind of like waterfall. These stages are all separate, but that the, the lines are blurring between folks like engineers and designers. And what that means is that we can create product faster and learn faster. So it might mean, you know, that we prototype and try things and get it into customers' hands to assess whether or not it's the right thing or not. And that, you know, puts us on a much faster path to understanding and building something much better. Which leads me to my second part, which is the great deal of complexity that the tech industry is not only a part of, but is creating. And we are, you know, this seems trite, but we are in this hyper-connected world where the customer is kind of at the center of this web that is both very beneficial and super helpful is that like, oh, I could book a lift ride and it's, it knows my calendar. It knows when I need to get there and it can make sure I get there and it knows the traffic and it knows, you know, all of these interconnected things that make your life much more convenient. But of course, in that interconnection is where, you know, we are today as, as citizens sometimes losing our understanding of like, what does this system know about me? And what, you know, is this system doing with that information? And and unfortunately, there are plenty of companies out there that don't put the customer first and to think about how to protect the individual's rights. So we are living in a world where tech has a obligation and a responsibility to do right and think about all the ways that somebody who wants to cause harm could cause harm and think about the ways that we can protect our community. And it's it's hard, like it's admittedly hard. I mean, I have to ask my design team to think about the worst case scenario once they're designing something. Like think about what a, a bad person might wanna do and assess that before building this product because in the wrong hands, harm can be done. And so that new challenge is right on the top of our minds. And I think it's a big shift from what we've called for the past many years, consumer-based design or user-based design to be like society-based design. And think about the people that aren't even your customers, but the people that you know maybe one day might be, but the people that are going to be impacted by the product that you build regardless. And so that like ever-expanding scope and complexity makes building tech pretty hard, but it also you know increases the feeling of significance, importance of, of what you do, but also tying back to the first piece I mentioned is why it's so very valuable to have better tools to build and, and learn and, and build the right thing. Katie, how do you inspire people to be their best? How do you inspire people to be their best, I think, comes in part from encouragement and in a, another part in support as what I as a leader can do. But honestly, I, you know, the first thing I think of, I, I go back to Daniel Pink's book, Drive. Mm -hmm. uh, in that book, he talks about autonomy, mastery, and purpose as motivating factors for all in, in their work. And that really resonates. Uh, I do think that is, uh, you know, those are three essential parts of motivation for people in their job. And so what that's talking about is that, you know, you need to have the <clears throat> Kind of autonomy to be able to feel your own self-worth in your decisions, in your work you do. Uh, you need to have the, the mastery of being able to 
exhibit the skills that feel like you're you're successfully doing it. And then lastly, the purpose. This day and age, there's there's not enough time in the day for all the things that you could be doing or want to be doing. And so I certainly don't blame people that you know are wanting to use that time wisely to either make a difference, to solve the, the things that they see as problems in the world, or to build their career. So I think that encouragement and support that I mentioned that leaders should be giving should be, you know, trying to help foster those three things, help people find them for themselves and, you know, really recognize that every individual is different. So their purposes may be different. How they feel they, they want to be recognized might be different. And their skills certainly will be different. So really trying to understand that uh, can mean that you can provide more individualized and effective support. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, especially when we think about, you know, we're dealing with people, right? And as Dale Carnegie would said, we're dealing with people of, of, who are creatures of emotion. And everyone has a desire to feel important. So, and everyone is different. So how do we connect with each person individually in a way that is meaningful to them? Yeah. Well, what is the, uh, the biggest challenge you face today as a leader? I think one of the biggest challenges as a leader or anyone in the workforce is prioritizing time wisely. There really is too much to do. And the always on world that we're living in can be you know, almost intoxicating. And yes, I can open my app and do this and that at, at any time of day. But it sneaks up on you how all of a sudden that may affect you and your your health. It may affect your team. And I think really being mindful and watching out for that. And also as a leader, kind of trying to prioritize things that sometimes feel like they're impossible to prioritize. I mean, I I worry all day and night about the 140 people on my team, every last one of them, you know, their happiness, their career path, their effectiveness, um, and then probably all the people that they interact with. And it's a lot. And to prioritize what problem I'm going to solve tomorrow, which one affects 10 people, one affects 20, one affects the 30 million people in our community, you know, whatever it might be is sometimes just absolutely impossible. But I think we have to remember that, you know, we're all human. There's only so much you can do. And, you know, running yourself ragged and working 24-7 is certainly not going to get you better results. It's really about, you know, the effectiveness of that time and being really clear with, like, where your time is best spent and communicating expectations well and, you know, also making space for others to help solve those problems. And so if that's, you know, delegate and leverage that, you know, can go a long way. And I think that is probably something that I'll never feel like I'm done with trying to get better at. And that's certainly a challenge, isn't it? I mean, everything you just described in terms of, of balancing all those things. Let me ask, I mean, you're under significant, you've got significant responsibility, significant pressure, very dynamic business environment that you're in with, with Lyft. How do you find balance? How do you, for yourself, find that way to balance all the demands that could be pulling on you with the need, like you said, to be able to to take a break? Yeah, it's been a, a bit of a journey. I mean, I've definitely gone from, you know, doing regular 80-hour work weeks to trying to get it down to something maybe more like, I don't know, 60, 50. <laughs> but the... Uh, I think the part of it is really recognizing first that there is value in not thinking about work all the time and seeing that 
as beneficial. Like I'll give a maybe a more a better analogy. For a while I was only reading work-related books. So like leadership, strategy, these types of things. And the way I looked at it is like, well, if I'm gonna be reading, like this should be nourishment. This should be something that's teaching me something. And my husband was pushing on me because he has a, a habit of reading workbooks on the weekend and then during the week it's only uh, sci-fi <laughs> before going to bed. And I didn't necessarily see the value at first, but you know, he convinced me to just give it a try. And it's kind of like exercise or meditation. It's just like, you know, free yourself for a moment and recognize that how taking a step away and not thinking about something 24-7 actually can make you more creative, more energized, more effective. And you really, you kind of have to do it to prove it to yourself because frankly, I, it just didn't make sense to me at first, didn't compute. But now I, I really do see that value. So I try on the weekends or, you know, hours in the night to I'm not going to do work. I'm not going to open the computer. If it comes into my mind, I just kind of grab a hold of that and say, like, okay, that's a work thought. I don't need to think about that right now. I'm going to put that on the table and shift my thinking and try to think about something else for a moment. And it definitely has made me much more energized and, and probably better suited to solve problems when I do engage in a way that I honestly wasn't expecting to see. Uh, so I'm, I'm still working on it. Uh, there's probably more I could do of that, but it's been really, really helpful thus far. Yeah, it's something that probably each of us needs to learn on our own, right? I mean, because you can keep on going. There's always that temptation to do more and more and more. And until we actually take that break and start to recharge, we don't realize how much it's costing us. Yeah, So exactly. Next thing you know, you're running on empty. Yeah. What would you say to young, ambitious women who are hoping to follow your path, who'd like to do what you're doing? What advice might you give? For those that, the young, ambitious women out there that, you know, are looking to kind of grow in their career, maybe one day make it into leadership or to run their own company or whatever it might be. I think the first thing to recognize is that the, there's no reason why they can't. Uh, I recognize that's easier said than done. Again, you know, if you don't see a lot of people like you doing that, it's really hard sometimes to imagine that you possibly can. But there are those stories out there, and I would encourage um, individuals to dig if they don't first see the examples that remind them of themselves. There aren't as many women CEOs as there should be, but those that are there are super inspiring and can help us think about how unlikely it may have been at the time where they set out, but yet, you know, still were able to uh, carve that path and overcome. I think, you know, another piece of that is, you know, not being afraid to ask for help or even to, to show your interest. When I was little, my my father had a, he ran a movie theater. It was a tiny little movie theater in a tiny little town in upstate New York. And I was the candy girl. I was probably like 13, so this is probably illegal to be honest with you, but I uh, was the candy girl. And I, every day would go in and I'd clean the theater and get things ready. And I one day came to him with a list of things that I needed him to do, like paint this, rebuild that, fix this, because I thought it was going to make the place look better. And he took the list and he crossed out a few things and he checkmarked a few things. And he's like, okay, you know, these are the, you know, the five of the 10 things that I'm going to do. And I said to him, like, well, why aren't you going to do them all? They all need to be done. And he's like, well, I'm the boss and I don't want to, which was a weird response, to be honest with you. But at that moment, um, and he loved to retell the story, I said, well, then, all right, one day I'm going to be the boss. 
And what really was going on there is what, you know, I, I had a vision of what needed to be done. And I was passionate about that vision. And I saw that, like, if we do these things, things will be better. And I'm sure there were very good reasons why I wasn't going to do these things. But what kind of energized me and has definitely, you know, stuck with me into my leadership career as well is that having a vision and seeing possibility is so very valuable. And, you know, don't let that, you know, kind of fire die out because you think that the society or the people around you don't want you there. Uh, they need people like that there. And so I endeavor to not necessarily be the boss, but to uh, fulfill a, a vision and to try to bring my my abilities, which may be facilitation and maybe leadership to an organization because I think it can help. And so I hope those young women that you talked about um, see what they have as ability to help um, and almost, you know, that moral obligation to, to bring that to the world, even if it's scary, even if it doesn't feel like the right thing to do, even if it feels like nobody wants you there, uh, they do. Awesome. Well, great lessons, Katie. Thank you again, and certainly appreciate you and all you've done here and said here today, and also the kind words about Dale Carnegie. <laughs> cool, cool. I meant all of it. I hope it wasn't too gushy. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. This episode was recorded, edited, and mixed by Justin D. Wright of Seaplane Armada. Please consider rating this episode and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.